Hey everyone, I'm your host, Alex Taylor, co-founder of Parallel. Welcome to Parallel Lives, a podcast where we learn about the tireless yet vibrantly challenging role the women we admire most live in parallel to their careers and personal pursuits, becoming and being a mom. Today's guest is Camilla Marcus. She is a chef, entrepreneur, and activist dedicating to rethinking what it means to be a good steward of our planet, people, and future through the lens of food. At the time of her recording, she was a mom of two, but she recently delivered her third just a few days ago. We had a fascinating conversation about egg freezing, IVF, breech babies, VBAC deliveries, and starting a family over 35. It's a wonderful conversation, and I hope you enjoy the show. Camilla, hi. Thank you so hi. much for coming on the pod today. I am so excited to be here. I've been listening to every single episode. Um, it's extraordinary what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. And it's extraordinary what you do. You have quite the resume, my goodness. And you have two kiddos and one on the way. How are you feeling right now? We're about three weeks out. <laughs> wow. You know, this one's been just such a smoother road than my first two. And I don't know. It's all always a mixed bag, but I'm lucky. Very healthy, feeling really good, super high energy. Um, you know, I'm a like, do everything until, you know, baby sort of hits the floor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that. I like that. So on this podcast, we love to understand the life that some of the women we admire most live in parallel to their careers and personal pursuits. And while you have done so much in that world, I'd really like to talk about this personal side of your journey. And I thought we could start with your fertility journey. Can you tell me how old were you and where were you in your life when you started your family? So I had my first just before I turned 35. And actually my journey really is before that. So I met my husband at 19 in college and, you know, we've been together. I think this year will be the year we pass, right? Being together longer than we have been. But really, you know, I'm the youngest of a lot of cousins. You know, I'm the youngest of my family. I didn't really grow up with... Like I wasn't a babysitter, you know, I didn't really grow up with kids in that way. And I really wasn't sure I wanted kids. And when we got married, I said, look, I'm just not sure. And if that is absolutely something you want and need, I just like really don't know that I can live with that pressure. And what was it that made you feel unsure? You know, I've always been career oriented. I knew I always wanted to work. You know, I wasn't gifted with the sort of this is my path and passion as far as a career, you know. A lot of my college roommates are doctors and I always envied that like they knew exactly what the path was, but I just, you know, I'm very spontaneous. I love to travel. I'm very adventurous. I really took a lot of pride in school and work. And, and like I said, I just wasn't, I'm not, I don't know. I've never been like goo goo for babies. I mean, I have a lot yeah. of friends with kids and I always say I'm like the weird aunt that the kids love. Cause I sort of am like, don't care as much in a weird way. And I, I just am not, I never was like that. I didn't like see a baby on the street and just like want to hold them. I have so many friends like that who are these just like born mothers. I really, I mean, I, it's so un PC to say, which really makes me sad, but not at all. It's, it's not actually, and it shouldn't be un PC either because you would not believe how many women their responses. I didn't think I wanted to be a mom. I couldn't imagine kids fitting into my life. I just think I really wasn't sure. So I actually, before that, 
Mm-hmm. So my husband and I were first to be married of our friends, the last to have kids. Um, we had been married well over 10 years um, when we started. And so at 30, I actually had two fold things happen. One, I had a girlfriend who was going through her own journey. She decided to freeze her eggs. And thankfully, she was very vocal about it. And I called her and I said, you know, talk to me. Like, why? What are you doing? And then really by the end of the conversation, I said, I'm doing it with you. So we literally did like joint cycles across the country. (laughs) Wow. Tell me about that because I don't know anything about freezing your eggs. What is that process like? I mean, I want my daughter to freeze her eggs in her 20s. I think it should be a total... I personally think it should be covered by health insurance. I think every woman should have the right to do it in their 20s. I just think we don't talk about fertility until you want to have kids. And a lot of times that's very far into where you have a lot less options. And that's sort of what I got from my friend. She's like, I wish, right? No one ever, you go to CNOB how many times a year and they never say to you, hey, let's take your blood. I mean, they do a swab for all sorts of random things, but they never say, do you want to have kids? Are you thinking about it? Have you ever considered testing your hormone levels? Have you done genetic testing? Like none of that was ever talked about ever. And really without my girlfriend mentioning it, I it really wasn't even on my radar. And then in parallel to that, no pun intended, my husband had a friend who was married, trying to have kids, and he was actually shooting totally blank at 30. So both of us were sort of like, wait, we've been married six years. We're not sure we want kids, but we'd like the option. And we've never even taken a blood test to see, we might not even be able to have kids now. You know, and so I think us going through that journey even together of, you know, doing genetic testing, doing fertility testing. And when we got a great thumbs up, I said, look, I want to freeze now because it's not getting better. And like, yeah, what if something happens? You know, I have a lot of friends who are young cancer survivors and their oncologists didn't talk to them about freezing their eggs. And thankfully, because I had done it so early in my life, early ish in my life, I sort of said, look, they don't care whether you have kids. They're trying to save your life, you know, and they're focused on the right now, but they're not thinking about, hey, in five years, you might want to have children. You really need to freeze your eggs before you undergo chemo and procedures. So the process for me, I mean, honestly, they told me at NYU, um, I did it at NYU Langone and uh, they were like, we've never seen someone from initial visit to like end the process so fast because I was just like, yes, let's do it. I did all my research. I'm ready. I'll sign any paperwork, whatever class you need me to go to. Let's do it. Um, I'm very decisive once I put my mind to something. I adore that about you, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I really shoot from the hip. So, you know, I just said to them, I'd done my research. I'm ready. And I think that's part of it is I think the, a lot of times it can feel very scary, very daunting and very stressful to take it all on. But you know, I worked the whole time while I was doing it. No one ever knew, you know, and then I just started being vocal with friends and family and people and on Instagram about it. Because I think one of the reasons that IVF is less successful is the freezing part is very intense. Like the extraction that the retrieval process is so intense to then follow on. So my second was IVF. I've now seen both experiences in different ways and years apart. It is so stressful, each of those, to do them together. I just don't know a human body that can really go through that. So I'm not surprised that IVF rates of success are so low 
it is so intense. And even that, they don't discuss that. They don't really encourage women to say, you know what, do the egg retrieval first, then let's talk about implant because it is really almost 20 weeks of injections, shots, hormones, stress. You have to be taking a blood test every day. You know, even just IVF implant on its own was 10 weeks of a procedure. I mean, that's goodness. A really, you know, people say 10 a weeks, long time. Like, two and a half months is a quarter. Like a lot of companies work quarter to quarter. Like yeah. that's a very long time. So yeah. for me, the whole fertility journey was really, I mean, now at 37, it's really been a seven year experience. So my, my first, we had... Right before I was 35, we had a very hard time getting pregnant. And I ended, I'm very East-West. So I had an amazing acupuncturist who, um, you know, she said, your cycle swings like 10 days. And so the chance of really getting pregnant is honestly going to be low because like, we just don't know, you know, and we're all on birth control since we're teenagers. And so the second you get off of birth control, you're like, I'm discovering this body for the first time while I'm trying to make, you know a target dart in the center of a board, you know, it's just so much pressure so fast and the whole thing is so messed up. So what, you know, we did everything that we could think of under the sun. And finally, and I told my husband, we have six months because honestly I do IVF right now. They're all, they're all in a freezer. I'm ready to go. We want kids. Let's do it. And he was like, I want to try And I'm like, this is so ridiculous, but okay. So I said to you, six months, that's all I'm giving you because I don't want to constantly be going through this. It's very emotional. It's not really as emotional for you. You don't understand what it's like to get your period when you're hoping to be pregnant. Like you don't experience that side of it. And then we, so we had set up IVF ready for the transfer process to begin on a Saturday. And I only remember because it was a Saturday after Valentine's Day and we went to dinner on Valentine's Day and I was like, huh. Feel really high energy, which like I never do when I'm getting my period. I was like, I feel great. And I'm like, I think I might be pregnant. So my husband was walking the dogs after our Valentine's Day dinner. And sure enough, I was pregnant, uh, or at least, you know, the the at-home test. And so the next day I called NYU and I said, you know, you ran all my blood work for IVF on Saturday. Can you confirm the pregnancy? Pregnancy is not part of the standard panel. You're kidding me. I am not kidding you. So I said, what? So you would start an implant process and someone could be unknowingly, right? Because honestly, it was kind of a fluke that I even thought to take a pregnancy test. If you're really dealing with infertility, you just wouldn't, I would never have taken a test before the implant process. So it was really insane. That was like how, like I could have had twins kind of randomly. Oh my God. Yeah. It was, uh, so that was very flukish. And then with the second, I said, look, I'm not going through six months of that again. Mm-hmm. I want to do IVF. It was at the height of COVID. We actually were moving and our eggs were in New York. So, so what did you do? Cause you moved to LA in the middle of COVID. How do you get eggs from New York to LA? <laughs> I said, I don't, it was when it was like literally lockdown. And I said, look, what if we can't get them to LA? What if they lose them? What if the plant has an issue. You know, there was so much going on. I was like, I just want to know I can have a second kid. So we need to implant now. My husband was like, our son was six months old, you know, six, eight months old. He was like, are you insane? I'm like, probably, but what if they lose them? I just don't trust that if we're moving, they're going to make it during this time 
Or what if it takes a year? I mean, I just can't handle it. So we literally implanted the day before we moved. We moved cross wow. country the next morning. Wow. And I asked the clinic, I'm like, is that okay? You know, again, IVF rates are so low. You're like, is this still going to work? And they go, well, we can't tell you that anyone has ever done this before. And I guess people who fly on planes, you know, have done IVF, but it really wouldn't be recommended. So, okay. Interesting. And how did you feel physically? Did it hurt? Tell me a little bit more about the physicality of the egg freezing and also IVF. So the egg freezing, um, I had, so they tell everyone it's a very small percentage, but there is a complication called hyperstimulation, HSS. I got it. I ended up at 190 pounds pretty much, which by the way, is like basically what I weighed at delivery with my son filled with fluid. So you couldn't touch my ribs, my arm. I had like totally blown up with fluid. Um, and it was actually Thanksgiving week. It was right before the retrieval and it was just terrible. I mean, that was terrifying. I just, not the weight, but just the pre and think about it, It's like, you know, your body over nine months expands when you have a baby, not one night. And so my skin was so itchy. It honestly felt like nothing I'd ever experienced before. And, and it was scary because, you know, you're not really sure it's happening. So they ended up draining two full liter. I'm weird in scientific. So I like to watch it. I was like, I want to see it. This is wild. And they're like, you're so weird and creepy. Like, no. That's so interesting um, though. So it happened overnight. You were warned of this and you were unfortunately one of the happens. people. It happens. It does too. happen. Okay. You know, and they say they drain. Sometimes the fluid comes back. It will dissipate over time, but it really wasn't the wasn't the fluid, it was the pressure on my ribs, you know, and the pressure on my body that was really, you know, the intense part. So honestly, I mean, I have so many friends who've done egg freezing and said it was seven days. That was the other thing is my body really didn't click in with the hormones for a while. It's almost like I had a delayed absorption. And so I really didn't get retrieval till after 17 days, which is very long. Most people are earlier. And I think that also was kind of why I had the complications. So it was traumatic. I would do it again. I, like I said, I hopefully going to peer pressure my daughter to do it much younger, but um, it was intense. It was a very intense process. And in terms of the process, I'm just fascinated by this because I haven't really been able to talk about this with anyone. So Leading up to a egg freezing procedure, do you have to inject yourself with hormones? Is it an actual surgery? Tell me about that. So basically you start with injections. Everyone has kind of a different cocktail based on a lot of different factors. You also go, you have to go to the clinic, get your blood drawn and get, you know, observed every single day, which again, if you're someone who works is not that fun or easy. Um, and basically every day they're sort of tweaking it, you know, to see if it's taking how it's producing the eggs, they're monitoring you with the sonogram. So it's basically every day for, like I said, most people it's 10 days, maybe 14 days. Mine was really almost three weeks, which was incredibly long. The first couple of days you're like, okay, this is fine. By day 14, I mean, you're like, I don't even know where to put the needle. It's all sore. It's all hurt you're bloated, you're hormonal, you're in pain, you know, you don't feel like yourself. It's, it's pretty horrific. <laughs> it's a short amount of time, but it's pretty horrific. And you have to do it time too. So it's very much like, it's very scientific as far as sort of dosage and time. 
The other funny thing I always talk to women who've done it, they like send you all this medicine. I mean, when was the last time you like mixed medicine and syringes? I was like, I'm not qualified to do this. This is insane. And That's they're like, so scary. shoot your abdomen or your side, just like don't hit the muscle. And you're like, I, I, I am not a medical professional. How is this possible? You know, it's not covered by insurance. Some companies are doing it, but it's obviously very expensive. It's very time consuming. It's very painful. It's very emotional. And there is this fear of like, I'm injecting myself and I am so not trained for this. And you have to like mix them. I mean, it's honestly, it's like an SNL skit. <laughs> like, I don't even know how I'm not dead after this. Oh my God. So I would be like in the, you know, I'd put them in my purse. I would shoot myself in like the bathroom. I mean, I, my husband was working for Nomofuku. I was like, I've definitely taken shots in their bathrooms before, you know, it's, it's wild. And it's so, it's so solitary too. I mean, it really is. I think that, you know, clinics do the best they can to provide support, but I think there's still a big gap as to what it feels like. And by the way, so then at the end, you know, the woman who did the procedure next to me had no eggs and you've just never seen a woman cry like that in your entire life. And so the extraction itself, they put you under um, like light general anesthetic. It's a very short procedure. I think it's like 20 minutes. Um, They basically, you know, go in and pull them, pull the eggs out. So it's somewhere between, I mean, kind of like a wisdom tooth extraction, like that's kind of the closest thing I can think of. Like you're under, but it's not for a long time. It's not like, it's not like a knee surgery. It's not even like a C-section. I mean, it's pretty short, but you are really out. And that's part of the scariness too, is like you come to and you might have good news. You might have bad news. They don't really know. And so it's also like you go through this very big traumatic experience and not really knowing what's going to happen on the other side. Do they immediately tell you the news or do you have to wait? They told me immediately. So I had 29 eggs, which was really high. Good. But then after that, so in the days following, then they assess them. Yes. So we ended up doing half eggs, half embryos. Okay. And we only ended up with two healthy fertilized embryos out of all of those and 15 eggs. And do you have the choice to decide if you do embryos or eggs and what would make you pick and one however the many. other? Um, Full disclosure, and I've been only semi-recently public. So part of the other reason that we went through the egg freezing, my husband and I were going through a separation. We were having a very hard time in our marriage. And I said to him, look, there's a part of me that thinks we'll reconcile and work this out. It's what I'm hoping for and working so hard on. But there is also a chance that we don't. And I don't want to not have children. You know, If I'm going through this, I really want to have the option for myself too which was a very difficult conversation to have. I'm, as you I'm can proud imagine. of you though. That's a big decision. And <laughs> you are just, you are endlessly strong. And that is <laughs> a really incredibly empowering decision for you to make at that time. It was one of the reasons I also did it so quickly. I just thought, you know what? I'm 30 years old. I've been married six years. I believe in my heart, this is the love of my life. But I also believe we have many And if it's not going to work out, despite us trying so hard, I, who knows, you know, what if I don't meet someone till I'm 40? What if I don't ever meet someone and I decide later I want children? So I really wanted optionality. And I thought, I also felt like it would take the pressure off of how we reconciled and us thinking through that. Um, 
So we did half and half, which was very hard. I think a very hard pill for my husband to swallow. Um, but the irony is actually our daughter is the frozen eggs and fresh sperm. So we tease oh. her that she's the bookend. She's sort of the oldest, youngest, which is actually very weird. And what's her personality like? Is she an old soul? No, she's so intense. She's named after Indiana Jones, and that's like the perfect fit. She's there. She only has two speeds on and off. That is it. She's <laughs> My girl's very like fierce. that too. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I'm so wow. proud because I feel like for a girl, it's so great, but it's so, it's just so intense. But I know we're like, you're our little funny test tube baby. And I can't, you know, I've, I've written stuff to her and I can't wait for her to hear her story, especially just being implanted in the pandemic and the way her whole story is really like <laughs> lots of therapy and maybe a lifetime movie, you know? Yeah. Her memoir starts very, very early in the, in the life journey. <laughs> my parents oh my were goodness. separated, you know, we had these rogue eggs. So, um, And interestingly with her, the reason we did it that way is, you know, I said to the doctor, I'm the youngest now that'll ever be. If we end up needing IVF again or wanting to do it again, wouldn't I be better off doing the lower quality option now because I'm younger? So the vessel's younger, but the embryo's older and whatever, however they grade things. And the doctor said, I try to convince women of this all the time. That's amazing. You figured that out. And I said, well... It just seems logical because most people want, you know, best shot right away. But really, the younger you are, you know, just better to take the chance. So, absolutely. So then the implant really, it's very similar, which is why I say really doing it back to back. I can understand why it, it has such a low success rate and so traumatic for women. I mean, so it's not, you don't go under, they just put the embryo up there. It's like getting a pap smear, it's less painful than a pap smear. Um, and then they like give you this card with this like weird image and they're like, that's your baby. And I'm like, this is the weirdest, creepiest thing. And in COVID I was like, you know, in a mask with a cap and this whole thing, my husband wasn't allowed to be there or come you're by yourself. We're like, this is the creepiest way to conceive. It's so unromantic. It's so like, feels so dystopian in some ways. And so they give you this picture, but the other funny thing is when you do IVF as an implant, the embryo is kind of aged. So if you think of like wine a little bit, so they're like, it's actually further along than when you would conceive naturally. And so a lot of the metrics and what they talk about, they're like, oh, you're actually at technically, you know, this amount of weeks pregnant, even though you're only implanted, you know, last week. So it's sort of an, I actually thought that part was kind of also bizarre. And then you follow up with 10 weeks of injections, almost like the retrieval process. It's very gauged towards your hormones. Again, you go through blood testing very regularly. Um, So it's actually kind of like a mirrored process. And 10 weeks, again, when you're newly pregnant in your first trimester, like for every woman who's carried a baby, remember those first 12 weeks and then add shots to it. And suppository injections, you're like, I literally could not think of a more horrific experience oh and my with my daughter I just had and I'm like not someone who throws up pretty much ever and I obviously eat everything as a chef I mean I would be like talking to someone and just like throw up would come out it was horrific so I was so sick with her and then like every day taking these shots and all this stuff I was just like this is again I you know 
it's it's a lot harder than we sort of talk about. And I think it's sort of seen as this like, and again, it's sad that it's prohibitively expensive. I really am very much committed to pushing a lot of boundaries to make it accessible. But even then, it's like no one wants to go through that. I mean, it's not like a joyful experience. It really is sort of a very intense means to an end and that you pay a lot you... for. Yes. And you had mentioned that you were amongst or the last of your friends to have kids. So did you have any friends that had navigated these waters before? Did you have a community that could support you? How did you, you know, it's interesting. Most, most of my friends who had kids had first time they had sex got pregnant. And I'm just like, you got to be kidding me. Like, <laughs> it's so unfair. I think crazy enough, the vast majority of my friends really had like literally no issue beyond having children. I had this one, one of my best friends, like I said, who went through the egg freezing with me, actually her daughter's IVF and our daughters are two weeks apart. And so they're like the little IVF twins. Um, And she actually did it with a surrogate. So that was even more special for me to also learn about that process and be able to be a support for her too, for that. So I really didn't, I have a couple friends who had done IVF and definitely had a community. And I think once you share your story, I ended up making very close friends actually through being so open about it. A lot of people then came to me and said, no one knows, but I'm secretively going through IVF. Or, you know, I've even had a lot of chef friends who are close to me say, I'm not ready to have kids because I'm really committed to my career, you know, or I don't have a partner yet and I'm not sure. What do you think about freezing? And I've sort of helped them through the process. So um, I think I've actually helped build a community and I've seen one sort of form once I started really sharing and being so open about it, which I was from day one because I don't really understand the shame around it. I think it's... no. I don't understand the shame and I never felt embarrassed or anything. I just felt like, why shouldn't we have, you know, why shouldn't we have ultimate freedom, especially when we don't have the freedom of time, you know, guys get to have kids at 60, 65, whenever they want. And women have this window that also coincides with the time that you're really trying to build your life, your career, you know, hopefully find someone and, move and experience the world. And it coincides with this also like tremendously intense life decision that is just, I hate to say the word unfair. I don't always believe in fairness, but it just is. Yeah. And a lot of us suffer in silence. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's just tremendous that you've been so transparent about it because when we see other people sharing our experiences, we can all feel a little less alone, right? You have to be very brave to do it in the first place. But once you speak your truth and share your story, you realize how many people are in your boat with you and also how much they appreciate you sharing. So it's it's tremendous. My hope is to help people get over that hurdle, right? To do it, to not feel shame or concern about it, to figure out how to save for it, to figure out how to go about it. I just, I mean, a lot of friends now know, you know, I've, really been sort of unsolicited pusher for freezing your eggs. And a lot of women I know, the second they did it, they found love. I mean, that's also the truth. It took a huge pressure off of them. Sometimes it's hard to get over that initial hurdle of like, should I do it? When can I? So my dream is that these conversations happen earlier because 
it's unfortunate. I think as women, it really happens more in your mid thirties and it really has to happen in your mid twenties. Yeah. I think you made such a good point earlier about how we don't talk about our reproductive health early enough in the journey. They're like, oh, you want to try now? That's great. <laughs> You're like, wait. So 10 years ago, I could have had really young eggs. Like, cool. That would have been nice to know. You know, and again, from 25 to 35, your body as a woman changes so drastically in a way that, and again, it's one thing if it's like a doctor that you don't see regularly, but these are doctors that we see regularly. Yes. And the fact that that yes. is not part of a regular checkup is just insanity to me. I want to talk a little bit about your birth stories and your experience. You obviously are going to have a third birth story in about three weeks, <laughs> but let's talk about your first versus second. Did you have any fears? How did you feel? Walk us through it. So my first, you know, as I said, it was sort of like a little bit of a miracle baby. We totally thought we were going to IVF and then, you know, he, he happened and I was working, obviously, up until the very day I was working um, at the New York Times Food Festival. And that Monday, um, well, I guess I should back up. My son was breached. I have 30 cousins. All my cousins have kids. No one in my family's ever had a C-section. No one ever had a breech baby. Like, I didn't even hear that word before. I'm from LA. Very few people do C-sections as compared to New York. In New York very high rate of C-section. So I was training in hypnobirthing. Like I said, I'm very East-West. I do acupuncture, all these things. I had a doula. Um, and 32 weeks, my son was breached. And my doctor, who I'd been seeing for a decade, she delivered all my friend's kids. I knew her very well. She goes, well, he's breached. We're going to schedule your C-section. And I was like, excuse me? Like It's like you hear the record sort of you know, scratch. You're like, uh, no. And I said, well, you know... I have eight weeks to go. That feels like a long time. Like, let's slow roll this. And I started doing a lot of research. 50% of babies, so breach are a very small percentage of the population, and 50% turn in labor, like while you're going through labor. On the flip side, there are no doctors in New York City that will deliver a breach baby vaginally, whereas in Los Angeles, there's actually quite a lot. So 36 weeks we go back to the doctor. And again, she's like, I'm scheduling your C-section. And I said, you know what? And I said, there's a thing called a manual turn. Do you do that? So we got into this whole altercation about it. And turns out someone in her group does do it. She doesn't, even though she was so offended that I even brought it up as a question. Yeah. And so we went in to do it. Um, and when I started to go through the, the process, long story short, I wanted to do it unmedicated. The anesthesiologist basically refused to leave the room. And I was like, you don't understand. I'm not going to have an epidural for this. So we do the ECV. It's unsuccessful. We tried to turn him three times. He was not moving. And before, during, and after, my doctor is nowhere to be found. No check-in, no call, no nothing. So after that, I'm obviously devastated, but I'm also feeling like, okay, it seems like I'm going to have a C-section <laughs> against my will. Is this the woman I want operating on me? So my dad's in the life sciences and I finally called him and I was like, I need you to pull a favor. Like I can't, I cannot have this woman operate on me. Like I think I'll have a panic attack. I absolutely can't. I don't feel comfortable. So he had a friend who was at Columbia Presbyterian. They actually specialize in high risk babies and yeah. they were very kind in taking me. So I had worked the New York Times Food Festival and that Monday was my intake with them and I was going to interview them and decide whether I liked them better. And, you know, we were sort of, 
getting to know you and they had a midwife as part of their practice. And I was so thrilled. And we go in and they do all the tests and they sit me down in the room and they're like, you're having the baby today. And I was like, excuse me? They said, you have no fluid. You're in labor. Didn't you notice you were losing a lot of fluid? And I said, well, I cooked all weekend. So obviously I didn't because I wasn't paying attention. And it's my first baby. So I don't know what that means. And they said, well, you're breached. You have no fluid. You're in labor. And this baby's coming out today. And I was like, my husband was like, you need to leave the room. So I delivered in a hospital I'd never been to. There are hospitals up in Harlem. I'd never even been there. Um, with a doctor I'd never met before. It was the doctor on call. And in fact, they had to wait to do the C-section because they didn't have my blood on file. And you need it in case you need a transfusion. So we were waiting there for them to process my blood. And it ended up... I work in restaurants, so I know shift changes. And I'm looking at the clock and I'm like, we're getting close to the shift change. If you leave me and give me a new set of nurses and doctors, like I actually think I'm going to lose my mind. Like, please, I'm begging you. Ask the hospital if you can stay here for the extra hour. Like I'll pay the, you know, I was like, I'll pay for the overtime. I'll do anything. Um, which they were like, how do you know that? I'm like, I work in restaurants. I know what a shift is. <laughs> I know the timing and I know all the signs and I'm watching this whole hospital turnover. So they ended up very graciously staying. Um, but I became kind of the COVID, it was before COVID, but I ended up becoming a big magnet in COVID for a lot of the mothers who were switching hospitals to get visitor rights or who were moving or dislocating. And it was interesting how many women had called and said, so what's it like? And I said, you know, honestly, at the end of the day, you feel grateful to have a healthy baby. Like, yeah, worse things have happened. I'd rather have my partner in the room than worry about who my OB is, to be honest. I think that's more important. So um, yeah, I weird. I had a very crazy... <laughs> Wow. Ideal process. What a wild like, totally experience. not my birth story. If I even told you what my birth plan was, it would be like, you know, this thing got nuked. I don't even think it was like ripped up. It got it got nuked pretty early. Oh yeah. It's funny. Everyone talks about birth plans and I would say a hundred and ten percent of people say the birth plan went out the window the second, you know, the action started, so to speak. So let's talk a little bit about your second birth story because I understand you did a VBAC. Is that right? I did. Walk us through that decision. That's a very common thing for women to struggle with is, do I do a VBAC or not? What led you to make that decision? Yeah. And I actually had such an interesting conversation this week with a woman who I just met. She's due the same week as me. She had the same story, breach C-section baby for her first. One of the reasons I was so devastated about the C-section was I... I went from never wanting kids or not sure I wanted kids to wanting four. And I was devastated because I just don't feel that I could do I've had two knee surgeries before, had operations. I just don't feel comfortable doing four C sections. I think like major abdominal surgery that many times, I just could not wrap my head around. And so for me it felt like I might not be able to have four kids because of this. And that was really the hardest part of it. Um, not that I feared the surgery or that it was supposed to be some way. But with my first, it felt like, oh no, I may not be able to have four kids. So I started doing research on VBACs. And when we implanted um, my daughter and then we moved to Los Angeles, um, I had a friend from New York put me in touch with Patty, who is your advisor, which is how I found Parallel. Patty is on our Parallel panel. She is actually an incredible doula. And what was so neat about Patty and 
candidly, what I think is really special about Parallel is that it is a product that Eastern and Western doctors and practitioners can agree on. And she is truly the crunchiest of the crunchiest, but she is brilliant. And she's worked with so many incredible women. So she started Uma Mother. And to your point, you know, it is interesting, but she is East West. Like she does understand so much of the challenges and the issues. So a friend of mine in New York who went through my first fertility journey with me, she did similarly with her first child. I knew they had worked together remotely, like they had known each other. She was in New York. And I said, look, you have to write a personal plea for Patty to take me on. I know she only takes on a couple people because she's so busy. Um, I just implanted, please call her. My girlfriend was like, I love that you're telling me you're like one minute pregnant. It may not stick, but you're already building your team. I go, well, I got to get on her calendar. Or she'll be full. So I love she it. does. And Patty calls me and goes, am I correct that we're talking about 10 months from now? And I said, indeed. I go, I bet your March is full. She goes, it is. I said, yeah, I want to be the first person in April. So that's why I'm telling you right now. She goes, I love you. You're so crazy. I said, well, I love it. <laughs> I know I have to get in. So she came over again, height of COVID. I said, I still want you to come over in person. I need to meet you. Like I followed you forever. I'm such a fan. And I had such a crazy, horrible, non-ideal experience of my first. I'm really hoping to sort of rewrite the chapter of my second Obviously, IVF is like a whole different side of not the birth plan. But so we really talked through it. And I said, look, you tell me who will do a VBAC, who will really support the kind of birth that you and I strive for. And, you know, this is your, this is your team. You're the captain. You tell me. And so she introduced me to Dr. Paul Crane, who I just, you know, fell in love with from day one. And he was like, yeah, most women should do VBACs. Look, with a VBAC, the chance of a uterine rupture is less than a half a percent. The severity of it is high. If if you can't get to an OR within five minutes, you can die. It is severe. There's no doubt about it. And Dr. Crane, who works with a lot of midwives, he does a lot of home births. He's very pro the natural process and really empowering women. And he said, look, it's the only one I won't do at home even though there's this very small percentage, I need to be able to get you to an OR right away. So I don't care. You can wait till the very last minute, do whatever you want in the room. I'm not pushing anything on you, but I just, I do. That's the only line I draw. Dr. Crane stayed with me for the entire eight hours I was at the hospital. I mean, did not leave my side. Came in to visit me in recovery every single day I was there. Like, was just someone who really felt like a partner, not like someone I was fitting into his schedule. And the whole time he kept saying, you're in charge. Like you are amazing. This is what women do. Your body is incredible. You will be fine. And giving me the, it was like the total opposite experience of my first. You just realize with, with anything, with any profession, any person, there's good eggs and bad eggs. You know, and there are some really incredible doctors out there. And it's amazing that you found someone that could really support you and advocate and stay there with you that whole time. Yeah. I think you flag a very important point, though, which is the importance of being informed. And unfortunately, it's the world we live in and we have to educate ourselves. And there are some amazing resources and people, whether it be a doula or, you know, the fact that we have access to all of the information we have access to. Um, and it's tremendous that you really educated yourself and became your own advocate, which is what we have to do. And I think that message is so important for all of our listeners to hear is that we need to 
take the reins and we need to, you know, kind of guide the ship. And you have to really, I think it's actually so apropos as you take on the motherhood journey, because you are so much more capable, intuitively knowledgeable, and actually have much more sense than you think you do, if only you would listen to it. Okay. Well, it's fascinating to hear all the different twists and turns, not only in your fertility journey, but also your pregnancy and your birth experiences. And I have learned so much. Before we wrap up, I'd love to talk a little bit more about you've been through the ringer, you know, and you now have this new sense of empathy for other women who are in this chapter. And as a business owner and a massive advocate in the restaurant industry, how has that changed you as a person? And and what do you do in that world to support mothers or women who might be on that journey that you were once on prior to having children? I've really worked hard to create a culture at my own company where one, we're open about those things. Like I said, I've had people who've worked with me who wanted to freeze their eggs and I helped them get, you know, speaking engagements or extra, you know, job opportunities so that they could save up and pay for it and figure out how to do it. Um, And if they needed time out for it, you know, I'm obviously very supportive of that. But even for moms that work with us, look like we have to be flexible. When someone says I'm going to drop off, that's cool with me. You know, I know that that person's on a computer at 10 p.m. when everyone else is sleeping. Like, whatever it is, however they need to be adjusted, I really do work hard to create a culture where we do have not only empathy, but we do work together to support that, right? It means not booking a call when that person is drop off. I think it's really a culture of dialogue, openness, and allowing someone to be able to say, hey, my kid's sick. I can't come to the office. Here's how I'm going to work my work situation out. Or someone stepping up and being like, I got you. Because that's equally as important as I'm getting my wisdom teeth out or whatever it is. Like It just has to be part of our daily... Even as a founder, it's hard. Like You want to spend time with your kids... I can't work 24 hours a day in the way that everyone else can. I don't want to go to an office 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. I don't want to be absent from my children's lives. And I want to be able to say to someone, you know what, from 4.30 to 6 when my kids are home, I'm not on a computer. If there's an absolute emergency, you can call me, but I'm not looking at that. So one is cultural, work style, flexibility, and just openness and having an ability to have that dialogue. I think two... As you know, I'm very big on um, working on childcare changes in this country, especially in restaurants and healthcare, which are the two top employers in the country. There's no such thing as a nine to five job. It's shift work. It's very odd hours. And the highest career advancement and highest paid shifts are nights and weekends, exactly when you can't get traditional childcare. So Childcare is a big one that I'm very focused on. Um, I know that Reshma, who worked on the Marshall Plan for Moms, is working on a very big childcare initiative, which I'm hoping to get more involved in. Um, and I really think third is, um, look, it is about education and policy changes. I do, one of my bigger goals going forward is we have to make doulas covered by insurance. We have to make egg freezing covered by insurance. We need to have fertility and reproductive checks as part of standard operating procedure when someone's 22, not 35. We need to be insisting that medical schools reinstate 
midwifery practices, not the way it's become. So there are a lot of structural changes that I actually think are very much within reach. I don't think they're off the wall and they do have to happen because it's the only way that women will start to be empowered and really have the system for moms and working moms, right? Like part of the journey starts with not feeling supported in fertility. You're going through this huge emotional and psychological trauma and then you're expected to keep your job, invest in your job, succeed at your job. And it's almost impossible. You can't just like let women out into the wild. Yes, absolutely. And I think it just goes always, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, a working mom, an in-between mom, what my co-founder always says, Tori, is supported moms are productive moms. And if we as founders and friends and part of these communities can really reach out and support other women that are in this journey by, first of all, creating space for these conversations, reaching out and saying, hey, you're tired. Let me come over and watch your kids for an hour. Even that, you know, little, little acts of support can make such a difference. So, and I think, look, us looking at this child, you know, this period, which in the, in the long-term scope of your life is not massive. It's not small. It's not massive, but this is really like women are expected to invest so much personally, emotionally, psychologically, professionally, in their marriages and their families and their work life. But we don't look at it like an investment. And the truth is, if you don't continue to invest, it's very hard to get to the other side in whatever capacity you want. But we don't actually look at it that way. And right, you're set up to think, you actually have to pay more in childcare than you probably make at your job for the first at least five years till your kids are in school. But no one talks about that. You're not financially planning for that when you're 22. You're all of a sudden stuck with it. So again, I think a lot of my hope is that the conversations more and that the practices and the support starts way earlier because the problem right now is it's all reactionary and it's you're already in the trough trying to figure out why you can't get out from underwater. And that's really not the time to be having that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the moral of this conversation. It's just, we need to start these conversations sooner, whether it be about our fertility, support, planning, you know, beyond that, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to share your story and be so vulnerable with us. Thank you. Well, thank you for spreading the good word and giving a platform for more of these conversations. Like I said, I think being informed, being honest, being supportive helps empower women in whatever they want their journey. And we got to do it earlier and more often. So we got to do it. You and the parallel team for starting. <laughs> of course. It. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Parallel Lives. Stay tuned for new episodes and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you like today's show, we'd be forever grateful if you take a moment to rate and review us. You can find us online at ParallelHealth.com. That's P-E-R-E-L-E-L Health.com or on Instagram at ParallelHealth. I'm Alex Taylor, and you've been listening to Parallel Lives. Thanks so much for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by Parallel. We are a prenatal vitamin and supplement solution that adapts to your changing body's needs throughout your motherhood journey. All of our products offer the highest quality bioavailable ingredients at doctor-recommended doses 
tailored to each unique phase. Preconception, first trimester, second trimester, third trimester, and postpartum and beyond. Because your prenatal vitamins shouldn't be one size fits all. Sign up for our newsletter at ParallelHealth.com to learn more.